My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. We have a lot of really informative videos there. We show you how to do different types of self-myofascial release techniques, mobilizations, stretches, and exercises that can all help reduce the risk of injury and enhance your performance. Give us a follow on Instagram as well. Our handle is at trainfully. And give me personally a follow. My personal account is at Elastic Golfer. Now, in this episode, we meet with PGA Tour physical therapist, Mark Wall. So Mark's been on the tour now for almost 15 years, and he's worked with some of the biggest names in golf, including Brooks Kepka, Sean O'Hare, Jimmy Walker, Gary Woodland, and Butch Harmon, just to name a few. He now works exclusively with Brooks Kepka. So Mark's going to share with us the approach that he uses to help some of the best golfers in the world play better golf. And for him, it really comes down to making the golfer feel good so they can practice an extra 15 minutes that day. Because as he puts it, if you add enough of those 15 minutes up over the course of a year, that could add up to an extra 75 hours of practice time, right? What would an extra 75 hours of practice time do for your golf game this year? And you've heard me talk about this before. This is the same approach that I take with respect to your workouts. In my opinion, the purpose of your workouts should be to increase your capacity to play and practice more golf. Because if you can practice more, you will get better, right? It's so obvious. You don't get better at golf in the gym. You get better when you practice. But that doesn't mean that your workouts are any less important. In fact, I think it means that they're even more important because they have a very defined purpose. They have a very specific role. And that role is to facilitate your practice, to make your practice more productive. I call this a practice-centered model. Having a practice-centered model does change the way that we organize your workouts because the adaptations that we're targeting are a little bit different. With this model, our main objective is to improve the efficiency of your movement. Now, people ask me all the time, what does that mean? What does having efficient movement mean? And why is that important? Having efficient movement means that you are not compensating. And that's important because if you're not compensating, 
then you have less wear and tear on your body. You have less wear and tear on your joints and connective tissues. And having less wear and tear on your body means that you'll have more capacity for gall, right? Most structures and muscle groups in the body have very defined roles. But bad habits, repetitive movement, and old injuries can force the body to compensate. Basically, something's not working as well as it should. And so the body has called in other structures and muscle groups to jump in and help, which means we're now asking tissues to do things that they're not really designed to do. They can do it, but it's inefficient and it increases wear and tear on your joints and connective tissues and decreases your capacity. Now, you've heard me talk about this concept of capacity before, so I'm not going to get into it too much here. I do get into it more in episode 12 with Dr. Ian Dunikin. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and listen to that as well. But very briefly here, capacity is a commodity for the body. The more capacity we have, the more we can do. So when we have inefficiencies in our movement, we have reduced capacity because we have more wear and tear on our body, right? So with this practice-centered model, our main focus is to increase our capacity. And we do that by reducing the wear and tear on our body. And we do that by improving the efficiency of our movement, right? And as our movement becomes more efficient, we also gain more mobility, we become stronger, we become faster, and we become more coordinated because the body is now moving the way that it's designed to move. And all of this, of course, is going to improve your golf game as well. Now, the Train Fully Golf Fitness program shows you step-by-step -step how to do all of that. It consists of 20 follow-along routines that use a scientifically proven set of self-myofascial release techniques, mobilization, stretches, and exercises, to systematically improve the efficiency of your movement, reduce your risk of injury, and enhance your performance. So you can pick that up at trainfully.com. And guys, these are some of the same routines that I use with my professional golfers. And in this episode, Mark talks about the importance of having consistent routines that you can trust. You can trust the Train Fully routines. They were developed over 20 years with elite athletes. Now, this conversation with Mark is actually a phone call that we recorded for you. Four and a half minutes into our conversation, there's a minor issue with Mark's phone reception. It's only minor, and it only lasts for maybe 20 or 30 seconds. So just a heads up there. Enjoy the episode, and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right, so joining us today, PGA Tour physical therapist, Mark Wall. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. Now, whether you're a player or a physical therapist, making it to the PGA Tour is a major accomplishment. So before we get into what your day-to-day -day schedule looks like and what you do with the players, maybe tell us a little bit about your journey to the PGA Tour. Um, well, I'm just about almost 56 years old, so it gives you where I'm coming from. Um, really interested in golf in the 90s. Used to um, actually put a, a, a lamp up behind uh, myself and players to kind of see what was going on because um, 
um, video wasn't real easy to access or use at that time. It was just starting to come into it. And then as time went on, um, got involved with uh, Greg Rose a little bit and was in one of his first courses um, at TPI and then stumbled into uh, 3D. And that really was right up my alley, kind of answered a lot of the questions of how the body was moving and whatnot. Um, during that time, physical therapist, heavy with manual skills. Um, so that's kind of where I was at. So I took, I took the 3D and I took a lot of the work that Greg Cook had done. Um, he came out, I think, 98 copyright, a uh, book called Athletic Body and Balance. And kind of looked at between his screens to see like how the body is moving and then looking at kind of what's going on with the golf swing as far as the kinematic sequence and efficiency kind of came up with an idea that I took to the PJ tour saying that if the body is moving inefficiently and it has a problem with one of those screens, um, there's a likelihood that over the duration of someone's career, they're going to have problems injuries, repetitive stress syndromes in those areas, or they will have it, or they're, or there's a good possibility it's going to happen to them. So that's what I went out on a PGA tour with. Maybe take us through what your screen looks like. I, I, I'm very familiar with the FMS and, and the TPI screen, but maybe explain how you use it, what you're measuring and what you're looking for. So I would just do the standard FMS as the as a screen for what it is just give me a heads up um then i would also use the y balance test to give me an idea of any asymmetries left versus right and then i would look at um if there was a problem with the fms or the y balance i would go deeper and do what they call the sfma which is a little a lot more in depth on what the actual problem might be why someone's had failing the screen then I would do a um, Paul Hemus 12-body sensor kinematic sequence on them and look a little bit more at the deceleration curves of the kinematic sequence. Yeah, I'd look for inefficiencies with the regular kinematic sequence, but on the downside, after the ball's gone, is where I see a lot of the injuries mm -hmm. manifesting themselves. So look harder at that. And then, you know, what segment? So if they had a problem... Um, with their their full squat in the FMS, then I would go ahead and I'd look at their reach, roll, and lift on the SFMA, and if they had a problem with that, and then I'd look at their um, kinematic sequence, and if there was a you know a, a real flat uh, pelvic curve, and then a huge um, thoracic kind of spike after the ball is gone. It's leading me towards, you know, the shoulder region, and that's something we have to look at. Yeah. If someone's out there and they're making, you know, they're on the, now these people are on the PGA Tour. We're not talking college golfers or recreational college uh, players or club golfs. They're making money. They're in the race. So for me at that time, it's like, what do we need to do to make this a non-problematic issue for them and allow them to keep the way they've been successful at swinging the golf club? So... When you're talking about the deceleration after impact, which tissues and structures are most vulnerable to that stress? What they're trying, what they're trying to decelerate their body with. Um, I JB, I saw him in like 2011, and um, 
huge like arm trying to decelerate the club. He's got massive forearms, and he was having problems with his uh, passes of his wrist, you know, lateral epicondylitis and whatnot like that. Uh, so for him, my treatment with him before he played, I would work on his form the day before he played or practiced. That I, and then after he was done, I worked on his forearms when he was done. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a good example of somebody who's got a, a poor kinematic sequence, but is, you know, making good money and is happy with the way they're swinging the golf club, and they don't want to start down that that combination lock problem of changing your golf swing or changing your body, because um, that's you're risking a lot of stuff when you start doing that, in my opinion. How does it work on tour? Are you working with all of the players or only a select few? Up until the last um, year and a half, I had a, a schedule that I would carry between, you know, on the low side, you know, four players, and to the high side, I've carried up to ten players if it all worked out um, that everybody got the service they needed. It's just kind of like three tiers on the PGA Tour. You've got your A tier, and these are the guys that are top 50 in the world. They're in all the majors. They're in the WGC. They get to pick their schedule the way they want it. And then you've got your guys that are, they've made their card in one shape, manner, or form, whether, you know, top 125 or they're exempt or whatever it might be. And they can pick and choose where they want to go and where they want to play. And say those guys are also in the invitationals, the Bay Hills, the Northern Trust and stuff like that. And you got your guys that are, you know, you're 125 to, you know, 150 or 175 that are slipping into the, the, the other events. The, so if you start out with all A players, um, eventually they become B players and possibly C players and you're spreading yourself really thin. So if there's a kind of a, a sweet spot you can get into where you can carry more players because some guys aren't going to go play um, Tampa or they might not play Louisiana. So you can count they're not going to be there. Then you know there's guys that are getting in those events and they're going to play those ones. So it's a juggling act. And then um, the guys have to be willing to work with that too because the number that they're paying isn't like a solo number. It's a multiple number. So they split that fee amongst each other. So uh, my day would look like, you know, I've got, say I got three guys going off in the morning wave and two guys going off in the afternoon. So I'm up at, depending on where I stayed that week, right? Um, maybe, you know, 4.45, get to the course by 6. I got somebody going off at 8.30, see this person an hour and a half before, see this person an hour of 15. So they got two people that want to go at the same time. Someone's going to give 10 minutes. Someone's going to give me 10 minutes on the other side. See the players for about, if they've got no physical issues, it's just a maintenance type thing. Maybe see them for 15 minutes before they play. Um, go check them on the range, make sure they're good. Um, you know, and then, and then off that morning wave goes, and then you might have an hour or two to, to kick back, maybe get off campus, do something, maybe walk and see somebody play, maybe follow somebody that's injured, maybe make a phone call. And then the other guys are coming in for their warm-ups. They're going off at like one, right? So I'm going to see those guys an hour and a half, sometimes two hours before, depending on who it is, and see them for their warm-up. And then by the time those guys are getting done, if you had somebody real early going off, they might be coming in, tell you they're going to practice for a little bit, grab some food, and maybe they're getting back on the table like two. And that's when you do the majority of your work. Maybe you're working for 45 minutes on somebody, maybe a half hour if it's a quickie, maybe an hour if they've got an issue. 
and try to get everybody in, get done hopefully by nine, you know, try yeah. to get some sleep and do it again and then see yeah. what the weekend makes, who makes the cut and go on from there. So that's kind of what the day looks like. Wow. You're a busy guy. Well, I said I was doing that up till about a year and a half ago and a year and a half ago, I made a decision because uh, I have a, I have four kids, but I have a three-year-old and about a year and a half, I said, I can't do this anymore because I'm different. I don't, I try not to travel in planes. I try to drive everywhere I go. I try to, I try to eat clean. I try to stay at a hotel. So I carry my, my uh, RV with me and I do that type of thing. I have my partner. She's with me, you know, a hundred percent of the time. And I had a little boy and I said, I can't do this anymore. So, um, I told my guys I'm cutting back to just 10 weeks, 10, 12 weeks a year. And then I was just going to you... cover for the other. No, go ahead. So I said, I was just going to, I said, I was just going to cover for the other therapists out there because it's hard to, it's hard to walk away from your players if they're playing in an event because somebody's always trying to slide up next to them at the bar stool. It's kind of like leaving your girlfriend alone at a bar. <laughs> um, someone's always trying to slip their hand up the skirt there. So, um, but me, me yeah. Me being out there for 12, 14 years, the guys know me that, you know, I have no desire to be out here more time. I have no desire to steal anybody's players. So my my idea was to just offer my services on off weeks to these guys. So I would do the Tampas and the and the um, Louisianas and just cover for these guys in a year to break. And if I could get four or five guys, it would meet my needs and that'd be fine. So I told that to my guys and they were like, well, it kind of sucks, Mark. Um, but that's the deal. And, uh, but then Brooks Kepka said, listen, I want you full time, you know, I'll, I'll meet what you need. And so that's what I've been working now for a year and a half, just solo with Brooks. Um, so that's cool. kept me busy enough. And it, he's a great dude. He, you know, he knows my situation. You know, he loves my kids. He deals with my madness. Um, and, you know, he likes what I do for him. So that's worked out good for me as far as that goes. So then take us through the specifics. And I, I, I guess with Brooks, what do you like what time does that start in the morning and then what are you measuring and, and what are you trying to achieve with him in the morning to get him ready to play? Um, I think with like, I think it's important for your players if they're, you know, like you said, they're, they're good players. They're players that want to make a, it's probably a more important question rather what I do with Brooks than what should these players be looking for um, in their care. And I think it's important that, um, players, you know, they're, they're ready to play. So, some players, some players, rather than me doing things to somebody and making them super loose. So they've got so many choices of movement. You got to think about like how you swing a golf club is your choice. How you swing a golf club being super tight and restricted in some ways is a blessing because if you're in your slot, so to speak, and you're tight, there's not much chance you're going to get out of it because that's your slot. If you work with some of the senior players or Stricker, I work with him for years. You see this guy move. You see him get off the table. You're like, holy shit, you know, how does this guy function? He can barely move. It looks like he's dying, you know. And then you see these guys get on the – and they swing a golf club. And you're like, oh, my God, that's athletic, you know. There's nothing else in their life they do athletic. So his tightness, his, his restrictions make him a better golfer because when he takes the club back, it can only go one way. It doesn't have all these other options. Whereas if you take somebody like Sean O'Hare, who's, you know, he's not a young guy anymore. He's not that old either, but he's just been around forever. He is 
he's got so many choices on where the club can go because he's so flexible. So for when someone, I ask somebody, how do you like to feel when you get to the first tee? Like Sean likes to feel as gooey as he possibly can. That's how he feels comfortable. Some people say, I like to be a little tight and I like to find my looseness on the range. So that's what's important for your players. And if they're going to work with somebody and they're telling them how they should feel or they're telling them how they should move their bodies, they need to walk away from this person. They're in charge of their body. Nobody knows their golf swing better than they do. Nobody knows their body better than they do. If you get somebody telling you stuff um, that, that you can't agree with, that's got to be a, a warning light to you because there's a lot of guys out there that are going to blow smoke up your ass saying, you know, like TPI is, is a great idea for the general populace, for a screen, for someone to say, you know, this is how a golfer should look or could look. But it doesn't mean you have to look that way because there's plenty of guys that fail those screens that are making millions of dollars a year playing golf. You know, so that's, yeah. that's the area that we, you know, so what I do for Brooks has no bearing on what somebody should be doing playing golf. I mean, should they be prepared to play golf when they step on the, on the first date? Absolutely. What does that mean for you as a golfer? You know, so somebody, it could mean, like I used to tell club golfers before I was out on tour, I'd say, if you're super tight, like this is what you see this happen all the time. Someone goes, they're in a pro-am, right? Pretty good golfer. You know, they're a five handicap and they come to a pro-am on the PGA tour and they shoot like shit. And you watch what happens and you talk to them. You'll find out that they usually, you know, get to the course about 15 minutes before they play, you know, they hit a couple of six irons and maybe they hit a driver. They go putt for a little bit. They walk on the first tee and they're stiff. Take some three, four holes to get loosened up. They get loosened up, you know, they make the turn. Maybe they're too over par. Maybe they're even on the turn, you know. And then on the back nine, they lose three or four strokes because they're real loose. So this person has been playing on their tightness. When they take the club back, as they internally rotate that right hip for a right-hand golfer, as they start to internally rotate the right hip, as they start taking the club to the top, they start getting a feeling due to – capsular restriction, muscular restriction, I don't know what it might be. Some restriction is their key to start turning their body the other way. That's their cue. Now, if you take somebody who relies on this um, non-contractile resistance, meaning it's not something they really have control of, it's a tight ligament or capsule, it's not muscular. It could be muscular in the sense that it restricts them, but they don't have control of it. And now you take that person at the top of their backswing and they're super loose. They don't know where they are. We call that in like from PT world, we call that plastic deformation. So if you tuck your thumb and you stuck it into a piece of hard plastic and you push, it springs back to you a little bit. So that's what they're feeling. They get to the top of their backswing. They have this plastic spring because of whatever tissues they're bunching up against springs them, tells them neurologically turn and go the other way. But if you push against that plastic hard enough, it starts to deform a little bit. And then when you take your finger away from it, you have this little deformed piece of plastic. That's what I'm saying somebody that stretched their capsule out feels like. Now they don't have that recoil anymore to come back the other way. So they've kind of lost the top of their backswing or where they are. And you can extrapolate this to any part of the body. So that's what I think happens when somebody gets stretched out too much before they play. Or if someone doesn't have enough contractile movement at the top of their backswing to have a muscular contraction that drives their backswing. 
So for that person, that club golfer, they're better off stopping at the turn, going in, having a scotch and a burger, sit down with their legs in a position, get tight again, and then go out and play the back nine because now they've got that tightness again that they've lost by playing the first nine holes. So if that's, so your, the, if that's, your, if that's your golf game, if that's how you play golf, if that's how you train, you don't do exercise, you don't do stuff, then you can't get stretched out by somebody too much before you go play. These guys come into the pro-am, they go and they hit freaking five buckets of balls and they chip and they putt. By the time they get the first tee, they're already, they don't know where their end feel is anymore. And then they're going to go play 18 holes, you know, so. Right. So then uh, like a lot of the assessments or a lot of the like protocols for warmups, you know, people are looking at range of motion tasks, or perhaps they have like a, like a, circuit they go through to to improve balance from from your perspective do you think the the main measurement that you're looking at is really just the swing and how they're they're making contact in the warm-up and then you're adjusting your protocol based on that or do you have a standardized protocol that you typically go through i mean i i have a standard stuff that i do with somebody unless they've got a hot spot on them. Like they've got, you know, I know they've got a disc in their neck and I've got to make sure that that's working a hundred percent. I check their range of motions. I go through stuff and whatever's good for them. But if I have somebody that's got, you know, the best they ever have is 145 degrees of right shoulder elevation. I'm not trying to get 170 on them on game day. (laughs) I'm just not going to do that. You know, I mean, I can get range out of somebody that's unbelievable with doing cupping. I can take somebody that's got, you know, you know, 80 degrees of shoulder rotation, I can get them 120 in a minute. That doesn't work well, though, if you're going out to play golf for money that day. You know, that would work great for training. I wrote an article yeah. for uh, TPI on, on basically that, that premise on cupping. It's on TPI somewhere. Um, it's a few years old. But, I mean, it's, it's about, you know, like, when do you want to – so if that, that person wants to get motion, yeah, that'd be great, but not when you're going out to make money today. I mean – not when you're trying to make a cut or get your car or do something like that. You've got to lean on what you know. So, I mean, it might sound a little vulgar, but if these guys step onto the first tee and they think they've got the, the heaviest watch, the fastest car, the hottest girlfriend, the biggest dick, I mean, they're going to play really well that day, regardless, <laughs> regardless of what their range of motion is. Now, I think actually most people would actually recognize you from the PGA Championship last year because I don't know if you know this or not, but you were all over oh, yeah. social media because Brooks was having an issue with his hip. Is yeah. that something that happens quite often where you have to treat somebody during their round? I wouldn't say it happens quite often. It, it's happened to me, you know, enough in my career. I probably think that's probably what I'm the best at. Um, probably on tour, maybe in the world either, is if you can't go, I can get you to go. You know, if you can't, if you think you might withdraw, I've done it a number of times. Um, and it's just, it's really where, it's really where you take somebody who does what I do and you said people can talk a talk and they, you know, they say stuff and, you know, argue with you over the internet. And that's one of the reasons why I have no social media process. <laughs> I, don't, I, can't, I can't bother arguing with somebody in England who tells me that manual therapy has, you know, no validity. It's like, stop it. I don't have time for that. I got kids to raise and people to work on. But I mean, that's yeah. when it matters. Cause I, there's plenty of guys I see who do what I do and you know, they bring a new gizmo out every week, some new thing to look at some new technique or, and it's really, you, you can lean on what you know and you can do that. 
and get really, really good at that and kill that category. You can dabble around in a bunch of shit. I mean, do you want your golf coach to be, you know, your swing coach, your, your manager, your, uh, your short game guy, your putting guy, you know, also he builds your clubs. You want that guy working? No, you don't. You want, you want Peter Cowan, who's the best in the world at short game and getting you out and showing you how to get out of the sand. You know, that's Pete Cowan's deal. That's what he does. You don't want to build on your clubs, do you? You know, so that's my attitude with what I do. Kill your category. And I try to tell these guys out there, quick, bring out the next best thing because you're not doing what you could be doing, which is my adage is paint the bridge. The stuff I do 99% of the time is really boring. It's the same shit day in, day out, day in, day out. The same exact stuff. I call it painting the bridge. I just paint the bridge. Just paint the bridge day in and day out. And then if something breaks, then maybe fix it or dabble with it, but don't try a new brush or a spray can. No, paint the bridge. Paint it the same exact way because egotistically, people want to think they're changing these guys' golf swings. No, shut up, stay out of the way, make sure they feel good to practice an extra 15, 20 minutes today. You add enough of those over the course of the year, these guys put in an extra, you know, 75 hours of practice per year. Maybe that's enough where they find it. You know, but, absolutely. You know, I argue with a lot of people. They're like, I mean, I've seen it happen. They change people's golf swings. They give them more power. You know, I saw Ben Crane hunt for more more distance. And you know, I'll ask guys, why are you on tour? And he's like, well, Ben had, and he had, um, you know, say he had, you know, a 10 o'clock, you know, a seven o'clock, a 10 o'clock, uh, a full swing, and then he had three different hand hand positions he would hold a club in. He'd hold it on the metal. You know, the middle and then a little bit more, you know, and then he, so he had all these different numbers for his yardages and he knew them down to like, you know, a couple of feet. It was ridiculous. And that's fine. And that's why he was on tour because he could hit, you know, 285 and, you know, be, you know, 205 out on a par five, a par four, and then, you know, hit it to 20 feet and make it right. So, there you go. He knew his putting and everything. And now all of a sudden, He's, uh, you know, he's, he's got an extra, he's got an extra 12 yards on his driver, right? And he's also got an extra seven yards on his, on his hybrid he used to hit. And now he's not sure if it's a hybrid or his maybe a four iron. I don't know, you know, now he's in the rough behind the green and there you go, you know, and all for what? For cause yeah, somebody absolutely. said, I can give you, I can get you 164 miles per hour ball speed. Uh, it's just, it's just, and somebody convinced him of it and he went down that road. And once you go down that road, it's hard to turn around and come back because it's a combination lock. You don't know which number you fucked up, but now you're looking at your club and, you know, I've seen guys try to reproduce what I was doing with cupping, working on players and they got their swings to be longer. They don't know what they're doing with the cupping. They just, you know, saw somebody do it and saw somebody had a good reaction to it. And all of a sudden they're doing that. And the players, you know, hitting it sideways, and they're looking at their golf coach, and the golf coach going, ah. and they're looking at the club, and they're saying, well, check my lofts and lies, and, you know, they're saying, well, maybe it's this new ball I have, and, you know, maybe I shouldn't have changed that driver, and, geez, I don't know, and they don't know where it started with, and, it's, you know, someone said, well, just listen, when we get done doing this, your body's going to feel really weird, it's going to feel extra long to you, you're going to have to find the strength, the control at the top of this new backswing you have, that might have been the difference for somebody, but they don't say that, they just do something, you know, they turn a knob, tweak something, and then, you know, nobody knows where that stopped and where the problem started. So, 
Well, then what's your, I mean, you don't have to answer this one if you don't want to, because I know Brooks and, and Bryson have a thing going on right now, but do you, what, what are your thoughts on what Bryson's doing with, with his body and with his swing? Um, I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's math. I mean, I said this to Brooks long before Bryson was doing this when he dropped weight for his, uh, for his SI thing. I said, if you lose weight, you will lose distance unless you increase your speed. That's just, that's just how it is. Mass times acceleration. You know, it's how much do you weigh versus how fast do you move it. The equation is basic. I mean, it's a lot more than that, but you can round it down to that's your power that hits the golf ball. So consequently, if you don't increase your speed, but you increase your mass, you have more power, you should hit the ball further. And that's what Bryson's done. He may have even increased his speed a little bit, but he didn't have to. He just had to get bigger. That being said, there is the Piper's going to have to get paid sooner or later for this. You can't yeah. put that kind of weight on, you know, just by drinking gallons and gallons of milk and doing stuff. So somewhere along the way, you know, there's going to be, and we're starting to see it now. He can't find a fair way. They can't make him equipment. You know, he's bad mouthing. Uh, I'm going to say like, probably a bit much to say he's bad mouthing, but he's, he's not supporting the team of people that build his golf clubs. And these guys are working really freaking hard. You want to talk to someone who gets their ass beat on tour. It's the equipment guys. No one gives a shit about them unless stuff goes wrong, you know? So, and so they can't build him a club now and he can't find the face. You can't swing it at that speed with, without having that loft go down. And once, you know, loft goes down sides. I mean, it's just, a, I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's just an equation. You just can't do that. Um, but that being said, I mean, I give him a lot of credit for trying to do this, you know, and, you know, he, he, you know, people say, well, yeah, but look what he's done. He's won a, He's won the U.S. Open. He's won his other events. Maybe he would have done better if he didn't do that. And he leaned on what he what got him to the tour. I don't know. You know, that's just conjecture. But who knows? Maybe he would have, you know, contended it or won more events if he leaned on what got him there. Yeah, when he started that, I I thought I was on a podcast uh, on the Stick and Hack podcast actually for a little plug for them, but. Um, and they asked me about it, and I thought that he would get a boost in performance for maybe I was, you know, making an estimate for maybe two years, and then I'd be worried about injuries. Um, oh my God! I, I, I mean, I remember when he, yeah, I remember when he came out to the uh, first time I saw him in person was at the Masters when he came in as um, AM champ, and he's a tiny guy. He's a little guy, not big, <laughs> not not no. big, and yeah, you still kind of, you know pseudo-adolescent at that time, you know, high teens or 20 maybe at the time. I don't know how old he was, but he was still, you know, hadn't hadn't dropped his nuts, as they like to say yet. But he was a little guy, but his vertebrae can't be a whole lot bigger than than now than they were there. So I think that's what I'm saying. There's going to be the Piper. The Pied Piper is going to have to get paid for this at some point in time. Um, so yeah, his body, totally you know, ha- it has, has to break down. I know he's got some guys that work with him that are supposed to be pretty good, and he's really pleased with them. Um, so hopefully they're, you know, decompressing stuff like I do and just undoing what he does every day to his body. I hope that's happening for him because if it's, if it's not, then he's going to be in he's going to be in some trouble. Well, let's talk about that now. What do you recommend, or what do you do with the guys after a round to help them recover? It's, it's a lot of soft tissue work for me. I'll do full, I mean, I do their feet, toes, you know, hands, forearms, you know. I mean, I, I do soft tissue top to bottom. Um, 
kind of have a little system on how to do it so I can get it done within a reasonable amount of time. And some areas on some people I hit a little bit more than I hit on other areas. But I'll do that. You know, I do a lot of high velocity adjustments on, you know, I don't do them in the standard place. I stay away from, I stay away from lumbar. I stay away from mid cervical. I tend to do my adjustments on places where there are transitional curves. So, uh, thoracolumbar junction. So where your lumbar transitions into your thoracic. I've got a pretty good system for adjusting that area there because if you look at that, you know, T12 to L1, you know, that area there, you got a lot of stuff tying in there. You got your you got your psoas trying tying in there. You got your diaphragm tying in there. You also have this transitional area from kyphosis to lordosis. So for me, that's a big area to adjust. Also is um, CT junction. So um, your junction between your thoracic and your um, cervical region. So I have adjustments for, for that area because those areas to me seem to get hypomobile, whereas the classic manipulative areas, which are mid-cervical, uh, lumbosacral, you know, the million-dollar roll stuff, those seem to get over-manipulated. They're, more, they're, they're hypermobile. I don't think they need more movement in there. I think they need more stability. So once again, you know, kind of look at the, the, I don't know if you guys know Vladimir Yanda, but that kind oh, of yeah. idea of, yeah, the, 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 the rotating hyper hypo mobility areas. So those area, upper cervical, you know, a lot of upper cervical, maybe not a whole lot of manipulation there. I'll, I will manipulate there occasionally if necessary, but um, a lot of soft tissue area in that trying to free up those areas so that these guys can try to get a couple degrees of movement if necessary. Once again, for an individual, if it's from there, like for Sean O'Hara, I'm not trying to get more movement from him. I'm trying to get more stability. So. What are the most common injuries on tour and uh, what are their risk factors? Probably uh lumbar, you know, lumbar issues are probably the most prevalent. Um, um, you know, these are like, I mean, that's, that's probably what you see the most that you see neck issues too. I mean, quite a bit. Um, are these like uh discogenic issues? Uh, that's, you know, once again, when, when we're looking at a diagnosis for something like, you know, it's a disc, it's a herniated disc, it's a ruptured wall. Well, I mean, if you look at some of the studies that are done, I mean, McKenzie's stuff they did years and years ago is pretty famous. They take like, I mean, I'm going to fudge the numbers and I'm sure someone will call me on it, but somewhere <laughs> like a hundred, a hundred non-symptomatic, non-symptomatic low back pain MRIs. So people, no history of back pain or within the criteria that they had, no current acute back pain. Um, and they do MRIs on them. Something like 70 to 77% of them come back with, positive for a herniated disc. So yeah, that's telling that us right. that 75, yeah, 75 percent of the population is walking around with a diagnosable disc issue yeah. and they have no symptoms. So if someone comes in with back pain, what's the odds they're going to have a, a disc? That's why you get these kind of crescent guys that are like, oh, yeah, it's, it's probably a disc. It's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> Well, that's also why, for the people listening, that's also why your doctor is probably not wanting to do an MRI on your back because it would come back with a a ton of injuries. You can't tell which ones are are old, which ones are scabbed over. It's just going to be a a mess, so that's why they usually avoid it. 
Yeah, one hundred percent right with that, and that's another reason why you know even radiological stuff's way overused. I mean, yeah. any any radio. I mean, I mean the the gold standard for lower extremity um, X-ray should be is, and it still is, and always will be. You cannot bear weight on that leg, right? So unless you can, if you can bear weight on your leg, you don't need an X-ray. <laughs> But yet we still yeah. x-ray like crazy. And the amount of rads people are getting because of that is, I mean, that's a whole other podcast to go down. It's like overuse of diagnostic stuff because people get paid to do it. Um, so, I mean, yeah. So that's what I'm getting back to on the thing. Is it discogenic? Is it not? You know, who came first, the chicken or the egg? Does Is there a disc there? You know, because um, they put so much stress on the annular tissue and it bulged. Or is there a disc there because someone you know, has a malaligned sacrum, you know, they've got a backward sacral torsion left on right, and now they've got this side bending that they're constantly in, adding to that that they hit a golf ball in this asymmetrical way, and they're constantly compressing the right side, um, and they're putting the pressure on the back left. So who came, you know, what is it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. that gets now, down do to the you... whole thing. Like, like, like working yeah. with Ben Crane, this is probably, I mean, relevant for some people, working with him he couldn't find someone to get him better and then i started working with him he started getting better and you know i go and i i work on him i'm doing the classic leg length and you know he's got his right leg is i mean say a half inch might be an underestimate it's shorter than his than his left leg you know he's like yeah that's my problem it's my problem and i'm like i wouldn't be so sure <laughs> you know and that became yeah. and as our treatment over the next five or six years evolved that became normal for him he hit it best he was able to get through the ball when he was in that kind of impact position at setup, which meant his right leg was a little bit shorter and he was like, it looked like he was up on his, if he didn't, if he was normal length, it would look like he was up on his toe on his leg at impact. You see where I'm coming from? Yeah. He's at impact and he's like, he's, he's standing up on the left side and his heels off the ground. That's what he would look like if he didn't have that half inch leg length discrepancy. So people yeah. would put him back to normal, and he'd have trouble getting through the ball. So for me, when I looked at him and I was like, ah, that's fucked up. He's level. Yeah. I knew he was having a problem. And, I would, and the other thing you got to watch out was when people answer your questions for you. Like I see people all the time going, so you're better now, right? Feels better, right? <laughs> that's not how you ask the question. <laughs> you just say, mm. all the stuff from like when we learned McKenzie formally learned McKenzie and took the test for McKenzie. It's how are you? Worse, better, or the same? If you can't answer in two seconds, you're the same. That's the same as no better. Right? So how are you? Worse, better, or the same? How are you? Worse, better, or the same? And over the time, as our treatment evolved, he hit the ball better when he had that right short leg. Um, he felt better when he had a right short leg. So we stopped trying to fix it. And when it was level, I made it short. So, Interesting. You know, Very cool. So that's one thing I'm saying. So if you've got someone walking into your, one of your players, and your players, you know, Whatever, whatever it really is, a plus, have a plus ten scratch. Wherever you are in it, you got somebody saying, "Yeah, boy, I can see where you have problems because your TPI screen says that you shouldn't be able." Just just say, you know, dude, shut the, shut up, stop, step away yeah. from me. Don't tell me how to do that. You know. Very. You know, I had a, a, a very similar conversation with Stuart McGill about Dr. McGill about this. He was he had a basketball player who was dealing with some really bad low back pain, and his hamstrings were like really tight. And so they worked on that. They improved the extensibility. But when they did that, his performance 
drop so dramatically that they eventually had, you know, Whereas, we got yeah. exactly and we like basically had to come up with just a strategy to deal with his sore back while not touching his hamstrings because as soon as we I, we did that performance dropped couldn't jump yeah i think i think the core of like i think the core of of my um I don't know what it is. It's, I want to say fear, but it's my fear of like messing somebody up and affecting their performance came back from when I was in PT school and we had a course on uh, um, paraplegia, you know, and the, and the person that was teaching the course was a paraplegic. And he said, listen, you need to think about what you're doing. If I'm a paraplegic and you go and loosen up my hamstrings, you're essentially screwing me because that's how I hold myself up in the morning when I put my pants on. It's my hamstrings that keep me from face planting onto my knees. So I need these tight hamstrings. So you've got to think about everything you're doing when you're working out somebody. How is that going to affect them? You know? So, you know, I took that into the rest of my, that beginning part of my career. And then when I met Greg Rose, he, he relayed a story about he worked with somebody one time this was in one of his like big classes early on. And he said, I work with a, I work with this golfer and, you know, I helped him and he was real happy. And then I saw him like a year later and he came back to me. He says, I don't know what you did, but I can't play golf anymore. I need you to put me back the way I was. And Greg said, I, I don't know what I did. You know, so that's another thing. That's like, you need to be, you know, you can mess somebody up and it's, and these guys walk on. I see, I see guys that do what I do work on people, you know, without consideration, and they move on, and these guys lose their cards, and, you know, they go on to become insurance agents, and if they're lucky, or maybe they sell cars, you know, or maybe they can hustle, you know, somebody for money because yeah. nobody knows who they are. But, I mean, it's a, it's a thing. It really is a thing. So, um, I, Doc Redman, I met him because I worked with Jay Bird for a while, and his brother, Jordan, was at Clemson, and I got to know him pretty well, and we kind of we kind of dorked out about 3D for a while. And then he said to me, he's got uh, Doc coming out. Could I see him a few times uh, when he had his um, he had his exemptions, like seven exemptions, as he came out as an AM. And then, uh, so I worked with him a few times, and then you know helped him out as much as I could, and you know gave him some advice. And and he told me he asked me similar questions like, what should I be doing? And I said the same stuff I'm saying to you. And he ended up working with guys down in uh, the Clemson area, I guess you know, and good guys. They look like they had their stuff, but once again, they did things to him that weren't right for his body. He's got a really unique body, you know? So he ended up actually coming up about three years ago now and spending a couple of days with me at my house up here. And I worked on him and got him straightened out and, you know, gave him like kind of a path to go down, but you, yeah. you know, once again, and, and the problem is that these guys are trying to hang their shingle on some of these guys' names. Well, I've had, yeah. this is I mean, funny because I had somebody recently, um, that I started working with, they're they're looking to increase their swing speed, and they had gone to somebody, um, pretty well known person too. I'm not going to say who it was. Um, went to them oh, no. to please get do. faster. Please, and, please do. Let's and, let, let, we need to out these people. Is what we need. No. To they who they are. You know? <laughs> well, this get this. Bullshit. So then, what happens? So worked with this guy for a year, and and, the, and and you know spent a lot of money, and swing speed went from 116 to 112 over the course of the year. And when he Got said, hey, what's going on, man? I'm getting slower. I'm not getting better. He's like, well, you are getting better. Look, uh, you can do this many pull-ups now before you can only do this many. You can bench press this much now. He's like, I'm not here to get stronger in the gym. I'm here to get faster. And I think there's a lot of people 
in our industry that kind of looking at the wrong measurements of like where the improvements are. And, and you're absolutely right. We're working to make the athlete, in this case golfer, better at golf. And that's really the only thing that matters is how do they perform. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken you know, recently with somebody, and the best advice they could have given the player was, you know what, at this point in your career right now, I'm not good for you. You know, need this. You don't need my services. You need this. And, that was, and, the, and the consummate professional knows what they're doing, should have said that, but they didn't say that. Instead, they, right. you know, made themselves relevant by trying to find something that they could, you know, measure and show them. Is it a jump test? Is it this? Is it that? And saying, okay, this is what you need to do. You know, when, when if you look at the person's stats, what they needed to do was they needed to get better at putting. If you're 170th or 150th in putting, right, and you're, you know, 85th in driving distance, it's, just, it's pretty obvious what we need to work on. And there's, you know what, there's no risk of injury getting better at putting. Right, zero yeah. risk of injury of getting punting. I've never heard of somebody, you know, blowing their ACL out like Brad Faxton did years ago and shortened his career because he was working out in the gym because someone told him it was a good idea and, you know, blow his ACL out, you know, or, you know, lots of lots of examples of injuring themselves in gyms, doing you know oh, something. Absolutely. Else. But but once again, so you you have these people that are saying stuff and you know, the the lifting weights to get faster is just it boggles my mind. I don't understand it when speed has not been tapped enough of different ways we don't use isokinetics enough jesus christ that's an incredible machine if you can get that torque machine figure out some way cybex or whoever's running biodex whoever's running it now figure a way i tried years ago to hook up a golf club to a dynamometer you know it doesn't work for i couldn't do it but i mean there's there's a lot of stuff to be explored with isokinetics you know and speed production with torque but that's not done and i'm not saying and listen I'm not the guy to do it. People are like, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you, I'm, you know, I do a couple of things really, really good. You know, I'm not about to reinvent the wheel and figure out some stuff or do some studies or let some fucking 19 year olds figure this crap out. I'll be long dead by the time <laughs> they publish the shit. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to do this stuff. You know, I do really good. You can't play today. I'll get you the freaking tee box and you'll play, you know? Um, so, but there are a lot of stuff to look at. There's a lot of stuff for people to look at to generate speed. And unfortunately, along that pathway for that answer, whatever that answer might be at the end of this, there's going to be a lot of golfers that are going to be thrown into a big pile and their careers will be over because you know what? We tried that and it didn't work. I'm not willing to do that with my guys. My yeah. guys, you know, they mean, they mean a lot to me. This is their career. You know, they might not have, they may not ever get a major, but you know what? They might compile $35 million in a career, you know. That's pretty good. Yeah. I'll take that. You know, Absolutely. some of the guys are going to win majors, you know. Some, but once again, you got to yeah, – your, your best availability, your best ability is availability to play. you got to be out there playing. And 100%. And 100%. And so that's, that's kind of like the whole approach that I take as well is just trying to get, get them to be able to play and practice more often. And uh, a big part of that is preventative maintenance and coming up with – with um, like daily routines, I like to give people to take care of different issues that they have. Um, is that something that you do as well with with I, guys? Do you have yeah, them I, do stuff I, on their own? Um, once again, even training wise, I stay out of the way. You know, I say go go. I mean, I have stuff. I mean, I think. I mean, for the for somebody that doesn't have the resources, like one of these guys on the McKenzie tour, on you know, one of the lesser tours that don't have, you know, money to piss away on trainers, um, you know, just a little 
15, 20 minute thing in the morning to get going, you know, go see somebody pay it for a private, ask them that you want to see a good floor program. I think that's a good place to start. Um, you know, as far as, you know, routines, I think they're important. I mean, like I said, I asked my guys, I was working for Zach for a number of years. I asked him, I said, what's been like the number one thing you would tell, you know, a golfer to work on, you know, and what do you think it's going to be? And he said to me at the time, which this shocked me, but he said, get your putting routine down to a half a second. So that's always within a half a second. And that's a routine. That's what you're talking about is a routine. So there's a routine that, you know, he says, cause on Sunday coming down the stretch and you got to make a putt and you've got your putting routine down to a half a second, you can lean on that. So that's the same thing with your morning routine. If that's it, you can lean on this. So, you know, you find yourself, you know, two shots off the lead on Sunday and some, you know, you're in Bismarck, North Dakota, who knows where the hell you are. You know, you can lean on that. You know, I've done the same routine, whatever it is, you know, so what it is, I don't know is as important as if, as if you do it, you know what right. I mean? Some guys are always searching for some, like I said, some new shiny puppy, some new team, some, something that's going to push them over the edge and make them great when it's really just, you know, kind of the answers in the dirt type thing, you know, just, yeah. you got to grind it you got to grind it out. And not that I have any experience in playing at this level or anything. I've seen, just seen a lot of guys come and go, you know, and I've seen a lot of, you know, guys just get older too, you know, and, they just, it just something happens, you know. They just don't what about travel? Do you have any Brutal. tips for how to recover? Red light. I love, I mean, it's probably, I don't know now unless it's caught on enough, but, you know, all the red light stuff. Um, travel is brutal. I would read and look at the Jack Cruz's stuff, K-R-U-S-E. His stuff is amazing. He's super high level intellect, and but his stuff, and if you can, if you can figure it out or if you can just swallow it <laughs> and not ask questions uh, is amazing stuff on, you know, how altitude affects us, how electromagnetism affects us, how 5G affects us, you know, a lot of that stuff. But um, so if I could write a program for somebody, it would be, you know, you get off the plane, you get your feet, on, you know, into some nice wet sand as soon as you can, you know, walk on some wet grass, uh, take an ice bath, red light therapy, um, you know, those are the things. Be outside, you know. It's tough to say to golfers. They say I'm outside all day long, but they're they're not. They're covered up with sunscreen. They've got their face and their arms showing, and the rest of their body is pasty white. So their vitamin D levels are going to be in the shit, you know. So there's that whole cascade of you know functional medicine that needs to be addressed and also needs to be looked at very carefully because you know they're the new carpetbaggers the functional medicine docs can be some of yeah. the stuff they do is amazing, yeah. but you know, nobody, nobody ever walks away from one of these people and they're like, yeah, no, you're good. It's like, no, you need you know, $1,700 worth of supplements today. But like, what's the difference between yeah. $1,700 of supplements and you're, and you're sitting there bashing the medical doctors who are giving me, you know, my copay <laughs> paid for the $1,700 worth of medicine, but it's the same shit, you know? So and that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel about exercise. I feel about exercise. Like I feel about, supplements if i can't get enough really good fresh clean water and i can't get enough really good food that meets my nutritional needs then i need to take a supplement i need to take a supplement of whatever is it you know some vitamin or a mineral whatever it is because i can't get enough of it in my life that's the same way i exercise if i can't get enough good you know flat-footed deep squatting in my life with zero drop shoes and i can't do this then i need to go to the gym into this horrific environment of 
fluorescent lights and all the other stuff. So you see where I'm going with that? It's the same thing. Yeah, now I got to take the supplement of exercise. And every time one of these guys are in the gym, right, doing something, they're not practicing golf and getting better at it. You know, they're not doing that. They're just, you can't do them both at the same time. Well, that's something that I, I talk a lot about actually is, is for some of these guys, the gym starts to become the event and like all of their energy and all of their focus, maybe not all of it, but too much of it certainly is starting to go into their workouts. They're tired after, and then they can't practice properly. So I know where they're coming from. They, they get super lean, right? You get someone like Camilio, you know, I mean, he gets super lean and, you know, I mean, I don't know, I don't know him personally. I watched him from afar, but, you know, got super lean and then kind of wasn't able to close, you know, so you need some of that brown fat on your body, some of that, you know, you know, to, to give you the energy down the stretch, I think. I don't know for sure, but in kind of conjecture over a beer, someone could have that discussion saying, you know, you know, what, what, what keeps your blood sugar up there at the end of the round. We used to do, uh, I mean, Jeff Overton, I don't know if you remember him, good dude. Um, but he would make some pretty poor decisions come the end of a round. So we did um, during practice rounds, we started just seeing you know, what he was eating and then um, we'd draw blood, you know, three times during a practice round. And his freaking blood sugar was in the toilet come 15, 16, 17, you know? And then you'd ask him after he gets done, like, why, why'd you pull driver there? He goes, you know, I don't even fucking remember. I don't know, you know? And then you change some of those things. So that's, you know, that type of stuff, your analysis, you know, you know, they used to do your analysis in like hot weather and cold weather and in dry cold weather because people really don't drink enough water like at the British because it's cold, right? Yeah. It's cold and wet and no one really feels like drinking, but you still, you know, so we would see a difference with that. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you coming on, man. I know you're a very busy guy. And not only do I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your, your wisdom and experience with us, but also all of the work that you do behind the scenes to keep the guys and, and Brooks playing his best so that we can enjoy watching him play. I appreciate that as well. Yeah, you're welcome. And I, like you said, once again, your, your guys are up and comers. I would, I'd say that the one word they can always ask is why, why just ask that question. And when someone wants to do something to you or someone wants to, you know, they're telling you this, you just say, say why. And when they start like throwing like words and numbers at you, you don't understand. You got to say, just don't have an ego. Just say, listen, I understand what you're saying. Bring it to my level. And if they can't explain it to you on every single level, then they probably don't understand it. And they're just, they've probably heard it from somebody three days ago and they're trying to just regurgitate it to you to get you on their table or get you as a client or something like that. So you gotta, you gotta, why, why are you doing that? Yeah, that's really good advice. All right, but Hey, you keep up what you're doing. If you can disseminate a lot of information to people, then I'm sure everybody's going to benefit from that. And uh, once again, as long as you ask yep. why, right? And you're doing that. You're asking why. 